I'm really glad that we got you on, user. I think yeah, you're, yeah. you're going to balance out those guys from across the pond. You know what I'm saying? Well, what I think is cool about it is I feel like it's a show that um, I could play for somebody that's non-technical and they wouldn't be totally lost or bored. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And there's still enough in there for people that really like the technical discussion where you get something deep in there. I think you guys struck a really good balance. I loved it. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 267 for September 18th, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's mostly patched together and it's ready to go with a huge show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. It's nice to be in studio, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, you're here, you're operating, you're looking great, and we've got a great show today. I've got a lot of show in me. Yeah, I've been off the air a little bit. It's filling the seams. (laughs) It is. Good thing I've got bands around me to hold me together. Well, coming up on this week's episode of the Unplugged program... We'll get into IPFS, the Interplanetary File System, that works by you requesting a hash to the network, and the network finds the file. It's all been really conceptual until this week, when Cloudflare has introduced their IPFS gateway. And we'll tell you how you can get started with this and a bit about the Interplanetary File System. Then you heard it right. Mr. Torvalds is taking some time. He's got some patchwork to do, but this time it's on his, on his self, on, on his own person. Person patches. People patches for Linus. And we'll tell you what's going on with Linus. We'll read between the lines in a few places and ask if he's dealing with burnout. And then we'll discuss the new contributor code that has been committed, I guess, to the Linux kernel would be the way to put it. Some of the controversy surrounding that. And the ha- maybe the idea that we're recognizing a new pivot for the development of the Linux kernel. There's been a bunch of others, like workflow and tools in the past, and perhaps now we're seeing something new. We'll discuss that. Plus, some people are saying there's going to be a fork. We'll talk about some other projects that have implemented code of conduct and how that's going for them. And then we'll end the show on a really great note. Wes and I have received our new work rigs. They came in just the other day, ThinkPad T480s. I've had a chance to load mine up with GNU slash Linux. I'll tell you the specs, how I'm achieving battery life that will blow you just away. And uh, maybe bad news, too. The bug that is is in this series of laptops that affects CPU performance and the workaround for that. And then we're going to talk about our setup. What we're kind of doing differently from our past setups, we'll talk a little bit about what's important in a work machine for us, and maybe some of the plans that we have to tweak these machines to make them a little better in production than they are out of the box. Maybe some new software, too, some some stuff we've been playing around with. So we've got a lot to get into. So before we go any further, we've got to bring in the virtual light. Do it. We've got to. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hello. Good afternoon from North Carolina. Hey, welcome back, Alex. It's good to hear from you. And how has the move gone? Hey, I survived the hurricane. Wow, welcome. Yeah, that is a hell of a welcome right there. Not normally what you have to deal with. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, it's good to have you back amongst us. Uh, You probably heard Brent and uh, Dan is in there as well as Eric. Ionic or Ironic or (laughs) Mr. Badger, as I call him. Minimac and TechMav are all joining us in the virtual lug today. And uh, I wanted to start with this IPFS story because it sounds, well, it sounds out of this world. So Cloudflare says they are very excited to announce the Cloudflare IPFS gateway, an easy way to access content from the interplanetary file system. 
that doesn't require any special software on your computer. Pretty neat. Yeah, they say, we hope that our gateway, hosted at cloudflare-ipfs.com, will serve as a platform for many new, highly reliable, and security-enhanced web applications. It sounds like this is just the first part of their distributed web gateway project. Yeah, and this is all taking part on what is Cloudflare's quote-unquote crypto week. They have crypto week crypto at Cloudflare. Week. And so this is part of it. Now, you guys know this, but just to kind of sort of get into the background of IPFS, usually when you access a website from your browser, your browser tracks down the origin server or servers that are the ultimate centralized repository for a website. Yeah. You know, it it, it doesn't have to be how it works, really, though, right? There's a better way. There's a better way. <laughs> so, you know, you start sending a request. It sends a request from your computer to the origin server, wherever that might be in the world, and that server sends back the content to your computer. That system has served us well for, I don't know, decades now, I guess. Yeah. But there's a pretty big downside. Centralization makes it impossible to keep content online any longer than the origin servers can host it. And that can be expensive. Yeah, and fair, if you look at some of our like back catalog now, a lot of those links go nowhere because those servers are offline or their pages have been brought down. So what can, we, what can we do about that? Well, enter IPFS. Ooh. Ooh. Hmm. The interplanetary file system is really a peer-to-peer file system composed of thousands of computers around the world, each of which stores files on behalf of the network. These files can be anything, like, you know, your cat pictures, 3D models, pictures of Levi, or even entire websites. Um, five, what, million or billion files? I can't, <laughs> the number is so huge, my brain can't even comprehend it, has already been uploaded and published into IPFS. That, that is impressive. Yeah, that is. They have a really good description of how it all works, including some graphics in a blog post that we will have linked in the show notes, linuxunplugged.com slash 267. But it's, a, it's like a block storage system, right? Well, yeah, I think the big thing is it's content addressable. So with IPFS... Mm, yeah, okay, that's... Yeah, yeah. Not blocks, right. If there's data blocks, but it's not like a block system like a drive. Right, now, so every single... You do group them into blocks, but every single block of data stored in the system is addressable by its cryptographic hash of its contents. So that's how you can say, like, I'm looking for this, I've got this hash go reach out, and then the network in a peer-to-peer fashion can then, whoever has a block that matches that hash, can serve you the contents. And that could be a number of systems. And the network is what figures out where that's stored right. at. You can actually distribute them. So if you've got, you know, you've got one, it's like a little CDN near you, but yeah. everyone can play. You don't have to have special permission. I like that a lot. Um, and you probably figure there's a number of ways to access IPFS content. Um, you can install IPFS on your machine and essentially become a node of the IPFS network. And it probably is the best way to interact with the network if you were going to really get down into the weeds. Yeah, of if things. you're going to be developing a- applications that run on it or yeah. really using it a bunch. But if you're just kind of curious, if you're IPFS curious, there's right. easy And of ways. course, you want to be able to bridge to the real world. Now, of course, there are already some of these bridges, but there's not that many organizations out there running one who have the kind of reach and bandwidth that Cloudflare has. Right, that's the big change here with Cloudflare doing this. They have a, they're setting up this HTTPS gateway to it. And that is going to make it really easy for people playing around. Um, so that's IPFS in a nutshell. Probably just whetted your appetite. We could probably go way more into it, really. Yeah, I mean, it has been one of those topics I would, I would like to play with more and cover more. But up until now, it just had felt like, you know, it's like any of a project that's sort of off its own corner, yeah. doesn't see wide adoption. Maybe that could change now? That's what I feel like changed, actually. You're right. Is It feels like IPFS is no longer off in a corner where I have to go get this Go app off of GitHub and build it myself to connect to the network now. Now I can use my web browser, um, and if you get the hash, they've just made it so you put the gateway URL in there and then slash the hash, 
And that's that's essentially it. I mean, it's really simple. So you could see how you could pragmatically catch, you know, build fetchers and things like that too for people that could go fetch the documents off of IPFS without requiring any fancy client side software. Right. Or if you want to use IPFS for your own things, backing things up, or just providing content to people, now you have a you have a plain text link for regular folk. So I also uh, think the other the next step is you know building your own gateway. So what you know, spin up your own droplet or something and build your own gateway to IPFS. So that way you're not going through Cloudflare necessarily because they'll probably eventually want to monetize that data. I would assume. And we just can't, I mean, while it's nice of them to do this, we don't really know what their intentions are or how long they're willing to do it. And we certainly, it's a nice thing to have, but we shouldn't rely on it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I am I'm intrigued by the whole concept. Uh, I, I want to play with it more down the road. So I'm, I'm glad that they're making it easier because it's a good way to dip your toe. Last week in the post show, Eric, Mr. Eric the IT guy, stopped by and gave us his recap of the Libre Application Summit. It feels like this summit's getting um, a lot of attention, and I think it's because they have the right people there. Well, Dan and Cassidy from Elementary OS made it as well, and they've created a post up on their Medium blog, and Dan's here to tell us a little bit about his trip. And Dan, I'm curious, where, what was your big takeaway from the Libre Application Summit? Well, it was just like a really intimate setting compared to some of the other conferences that I've attended. So it was really kind of an interesting, um, different, like really experimental startup-y kind of feel as far as a conference goes. Oh, that's interesting. Like like everything was really kind of um, loose and undefined. And it was kind of like creating the conference as you go. Uh, scheduled um, talks were kind of shuffled around and, and new little lightning talks inserted in between. And it was like it was this very like fluid environment. It was It was really interesting. Now, Eric, uh, you know, he seemed to observe uh, last week that there was – uh, I don't know how to put it that doesn't sound like corporate speak, but like a multiple stakeholders there. There was folks uh, from the Plasma camp, the Gnome camp, uh, and different different um, priorities in the open source community were were there. Did you get that sense as well, or did it seem like there was a particular audience it was playing to? Yeah, it was definitely diverse. Uh, actually, there was a moment where um, Cassidy and I had just given um, our group talk, and then immediately after... Um, Alish from KDE uh, got up to give his talk and kind of the premise of our talks were like the exact opposite strategy. <laughs> and it was really interesting because we were able to kind of poke fun at each other and, and kind of say, you know, like we're doing things completely differently, but what can we learn from each other? That is good. That is good. Yeah. Cassidy puts it in the chat room. He was there. He says, uh, you know, had a real unconference feel in a good way. I like that. I like it. And uh, what do you think of the location? Denver, is, uh, some people love it. Some people think they should move it for next year. How much do you think that matters in an event like this? I'm asking you as somebody who does this uh, as a full-time job, would you travel just about anywhere in the States for an event like this? Or do you think location really does make a difference in who's able to contribute? Uh, for me, definitely having it um, in the States as opposed to in Europe uh, made it a lot easier for me to get out there because our travel budget isn't that big. So it's nice to have more conferences that are stateside. Um, I think that it is definitely a thing when we have so many people that are uh, either volunteers or like individuals or, you know, not representing large organizations that having more conferences that are easier to attend for those people uh, should be a priority in the overall community. You've definitely piqued my interest. You and Eric both have gotten me thinking this is something I'm going to have to attend. Hopefully the timing and everything works out pretty well. Maybe you and I could both go next oh, year. Oh, that's a great idea. Mr. Full-time. We, we can lobby them to change the name in person. Uh, there you go. Hey, now you're thinking. 
Mr. Full-Time Podcaster Ooh. over there. If you didn't uh, catch episode 266 of the show last week, we announced that Jupiter Broadcasting has joined Linux Academy. We laid out the grand vision, our plans for the next few months, uh, how we want to utilize the Patreon funding, and all of that is right at the top of 266. So I encourage you to go give a listen to that uh, if you can. Um, user air is back as well. We announced that yeah, last yeah. week. Dan's one of the hosts on there along with Popey and Joe. And I think I'll be on the next one. I'm not positive yet, but my plan is to go on there and talk about my recent, uh, what do you even describe? Life uh, event. Life event. Yeah. That, the, the, all the surgery and all that. Can I just say, Chris, it's so, um, I, I hope I speak for a lot of the listeners. It's amazing to hear you back and healthy and we're all just super pleased for you. Well, thank you, Alex. I appreciate that. It is it is fun for me to be back because I do miss doing the shows, but I very much appreciate Wes has been filling in for me on Linux Action News. He's been killing it. Okay, killing you set it. the standard. I just got to live up to I it. I mean, some people show up and they fill in, but then other people, like, they step up. And Wes is doing, you can tell, he does the research. He dives into the story a little. I, I listen. I hear that. Oh, look I, at you. He's doing the research. So that's been, him and Joe have been great on Linux Action News recently. I think it's 69, 70, and 71 if you want to go catch those recent episodes. I think they've turned out great. And it's a little, it's a little different since I'm not there, um, uh, which is funny for me because Linux Action News is the child of the Linux Action Show. So I have like a really strong sense of, and not ownership, it's like co-ownership, but it's a strong sense of co-ownership. You that gave I have that to the world. Yeah, I mean. I, so it's weird not to be on there, but at the same time, it's like, now I get to listen to it, which has been great. Uh, also, recent tech snaps, killing it. You've been filling in for me extra hard there. We've had Wimpy come in recently and fill in, and uh, on the last week's episode, Alan Jude. Amazing, amazing, both of them. As you'd expect, that's an extended edition of the tech snap program, because Alan. And then this week... Uh, I won't say who yet. I'll tease that next week. But uh, someone you likely know, uh, a member of the community who really knows his stuff, a great guy, is going to be joining Wes if all works out this week for the next tech snap that gets recorded. So there's been some really great stuff going on here at Jupiter Broadcasting. Even with me away, uh, the uh, wheels of um, progress, I guess, Oh, continue. yeah, turning and turning, and there's just going to be more and more. One of the things that we have coming up soon is we're going to be looking at ways to simplify and automate the production part of the show. So you can't really automate Joe. You know, Joe is our editor and that is just a process that you need somebody talented to sit down and go through. So we can't... Thankfully, you just feed him flax and then (laughs) podcasts come out. So it it works really nicely. Yeah, right? That's how it works. Uh, But everything after Joe could be done by computers. And that really is going to be kind of our goal is, you know, we'll sit here, we'll do the shows. You can't replace us hopefully yet. Then Joe, you can't replace him. But the everything after Joe could be automated. And so we'll be building tools around that. We'll open source whatever we work on. We're going to try to do it all in our new public GitLab instance that Eric has set up for us. Uh, what is the URL for that, Eric? It's, uh, it's uh, Jupyter, what is it? Uh, JupyterCode.io? Yeah, it's uh, GitLab.JupyterCode.io. Thank you. And it's just going to be the start of a collection of tools that we're going to use. Hopefully get yeah. something like uh, Jenkins or something along those lines up and running at some point. Yet another domain name, Chris. I know. I love my domain name. You got a collection now. I really do. Turns out, a little uh, little side, when you sell a business, those domain names are actually worth something. So uh, it was an investment all along. I just didn't even know it. Um, so the the other potential use for that GitLab instance that Eric has set up is the issue tracker. I think I, I'm not sure how I want to do this yet, but I will be rolling out like feature requests and content requests. And they might be different systems or they might be together or I don't know how exactly how we're going to do it. But I see those as two distinct things. 
a technical thing you want from the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, like a type of feed. Yeah, this feed doesn't work for me because of X. So yeah, or, I, I, you know, I'm trying to build this app and it would be great if I could get a JSON of X, Y, and Z shows um, versus, hey, it'd be really nice if you had video. Like those are two different requests. One's a like a feature request and one's a, right. a it like kind of like a, I guess one's a, I guess they're both kind of feature requests versus like, I'd like you guys to talk about IPFS more. That's a content request. And that feels like a separate channel, but I'm not sure. But whatever we do, we'll do it out in the open. Whatever code we create, we'll open source it. And then if time allows, we'll try to document as best we can. That's going to be an area that we're a little weak at, but we might be able to get some help. Yeah, and that's where, you know, feedback from you guys telling us, like, what where it's weak or what you need to actually use those tools would be great. Yeah, so those are things that we're now working on. Uh, and I think when we actually have something to share, we'll, we'll talk about it. And if we end up running into some fun problems or have to build some Linux boxes, I actually know we're going to be building some droplets to yeah, do some yeah. of this. So we can talk about all that stuff and the software we're using and the projects and how they're connecting. So could be some good stuff. We won't overdo it with the podcast stuff, but when we have an interesting thing around open source and free software to talk about, we'll do it. And I'm looking forward to that. So those are all things that are sort of coming. And uh, you can check out TechSnap and Linux Action News to hear something a little different there. But I think that's all the delays I had. Did I have any other other things? I, I don't could... know how. I mean, do you have anything else to pull out I here? Don't really I think so. We well, got these. We could we could talk about our laptops. We got these new ThinkPads. Oh yeah. Oh. But we should probably talk about the major thing that happened in Linux this week. Actually, two major yeah, things. Yeah, let's be responsible. I guess that's our that's our job that's as we're here for, right? podcasters. All right. So uh, this week, when Linus was announcing a new RC of uh, the current development kernel, he added something a little unusual. Um, that uh, boiled down to his temporary stepping away of maintainership of the Linux kernel, which is a, a rather historic moment in the 20-year history of Linux in itself. But his announcement really has been shaking the entire internet. People are are really going all off the walls on this. And it's he really owns some of his recent behavior or some of his infamous behavior that's, that's been going on for a while. He talks about how the discussions, both public and on private mailing lists, have been building for years. Some of these discussions came about recently, though, in probably a more louder tone because of some recent scheduling snafus around the Maintainer Summit where Linus had, quote, accidentally scheduled his vacation to take place. And then in the subsequent discussions about moving the Maintainer Summit's location so that way Linus could attend, it brought some things to the surface. And he gets into it a little bit. He says, it's not like this discussion itself is in any way new to this week. We've been discussing maintainership and community for years. And I think when he uses the term maintainership and community, they're really loaded terms in this context. I think what Linus is saying is maintainership is not just maintaining the code that goes into the area you're responsible for, but it's also all the human aspects. And that, and and then he brings in community as well, right? I mean, there there are this is a human project made by humans interacting. Yes, there's like you know the log of Git commits, but everything else that goes before that actually happens, you also have to manage. And he's saying the discussion of what that role is and how it interacts with the other members of the community has been going on for years. And I see that. I I did some searching around. I I'm sure I, you could find stuff before this, but I saw conversations in this regard back in 2009. Um, and you've seen it if you followed Linux for a while now, 10 years ago, 15 years ago even, some of these conversations about Linus's outbursts were being had. But he says, what's new this week is really my reaction to it and perhaps me being a little more introspective. And there's two parts to that. 
One was simply my own reaction to having screwed up my scheduling of the maintainership summit. Yes, I was somewhat embarrassed about having screwed up my calendar. But honestly, I was mostly hopeful that I wouldn't have to go to the Colonel Summit. I was, I, he didn't want to go. He's, to his, I mean, his, the summit for his, his colonel. Yeah, he didn't want to go to it. And he kind of is admitting to intentionally booking his vacation. Clearly there's some psychological factors here to play. He says, I was mostly hopeful that I wouldn't have to go to the Colonel Summit that I have gone to every year for just about the last two decades. Wow. But that whole situation then started a whole different kind of discussion. And kind of incidentally to that one, the second part was that I realized that I had completely misread some of the people involved. That's a big admission. That is a, that is a big admission. This is where he says the whole look yourself in the mirror moment comes in. So here we are, me finally on the one hand realizing that it wasn't actually funny or a good sign that I was hoping to just skip the yearly kernel summit entirely. And, on the other hand, realizing that I really had been ignoring some fairly deep-seated feelings in the community. He then writes, This is my reality. I'm not an emotionally empathetic kind of person. And that probably doesn't come as a big surprise to anybody. Nope. Nope, not at all. No, I would think we knew. He wasn't big on reading others' emotions. we covered it. Uh, In fact, you might almost say it was a classic aspect of Linus, really. Uh, He says, the fact that I then misread people and did not realize it for years of how badly I've judged the situation and contributed to an unprofessional environment is not good. This week, people in our community confronted me about my lifetime of not understanding emotions. So something happened this last week. He says, this week, people in our community confronted me about my lifetime of not understanding emotions. My flippant attacks and emails had been both unprofessional and uncalled for, especially at times when I made it personal. In my quest for a better patch, this made sense to me. I now know this was not okay, and I am truly sorry. That reads as genuine to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, he's in a position where he doesn't really have to write. It's his project. It's his, you know, he could write whatever he wants. It's, this is really heartfelt, and it's, it's very public. Very public. He knows as he's writing this, every word is going to get quoted in news articles. It was on CNBC, the entire email. It's going to be all over the web. Millions, if not definitely hundreds of thousands of people will read these words. And he's owning it right here. You got to respect that. That's not an easy thing to do, even in private. Yeah, right? And he's doing it in a very, very, very public way. But also, it's a watershed moment for the perception of the Linux kernel team. You know, I think you could clearly say Linux kernel has been sort of held up high by many people up on on the top of a mountain. This is the example of a of a community where your technical contribution is the sole thing that decides your merit. And if you submit a shit patch to the kernel, you'll be told it's a shit patch and they'll yell at you. And it's all it's not based on the color of your skin, it's based on the technical merits of your submission. And this is Linus, the holder of that image saying that is no longer true. We must also try to be empathetic. We must also try to be in a word inclusive. He doesn't use that word. That's essentially what he's getting at. Yeah, we'll get to more, you know, that that spirit of being excellent to each other. Yeah. He says, the above is basically a long-winded way to get to a somewhat painful personal admission that, hey, I need to change some of my behavior. And I want to apologize to the people that my personal behavior hurt and possibly drove away from kernel development entirely. 
And then he writes it in one short paragraph. The one that when I read that Monday morning, I, I, I had to take a moment. He says, I am going to take time off and get some assistance on how to understand people's emotions and respond appropriately. He's stepping down as the maintainer temporarily, handing the reins over to Greg KH, which seems like a huge moment. I, don't, I mean, has this happened before? I don't, in the I don't history think of the so. Colonel, I, don't I mean, I, I know he's taken vacations, you know? I know he's got hobbies. But even then, he's you know, on his vacation, he's posting RC updates to the mailing list. Yes, he often does. He often does. He, he is really owning this entire thing and calling himself unprofessional. He's, he's apologizing to people. And that, to me, feels like it's going to have ripple effects throughout the open source community. And I mean, I, it must also say something about how much he cares about this project and the people that he's worked so long with to build the project. Because it's easy enough, especially as, you know, the, the guy at the top to say, whatever, my way or the highway, I don't need you contributors. I'm going to take my kernel over here. And it, or it's easy to just, you know, back away and, and not never come back. It really seems like he cares about it and wants to keep contributing and is trying to find how to do that best. And I find it um, sort of there's a big disconnect, I guess is what I'm trying to say, between what the public reaction to this has been, which has really spun the whole gamut. People are freaking out. Uh, I have seen conspiracies about Linus being blackmailed. And uh, I've e- there's even in the, in the GitHub thread uh, about the code of conduct change we're about to talk about, there's someone offering Linus shelter if he needs to be protected from whoever's out to get him. Like the, the range of responses to this has been pretty extreme. But I think Linus sees it in a much more practical sort of way, as he typically would. He refers it as a pain point. And I, I, would, I would swap that word pain point and I would say a transition moment or a shift. He writes, put another way, when asked at conferences, I occasionally talk about how pain points in kernel development have generally not been about the technical issues, but about the inflection points where development flow and behavior changed. These pain points have been about managing the flow of patches, often been associated with big tooling changes, like moving from making releases with patches and tarballs, to discussions about how Linus doesn't scale up to 15 years ago. Even the ones about using BitKeeper and then having to write Git in order to get past the point that was no longer working for us. We have had that kind of pain point. We haven't had that kind of pain point in about a decade. But this week felt like that kind of pain point to me. And I think you could replace the word pain point with that kind of transition, that kind of shift. It's a 20-year-old project that dominates the world. It has to have these kinds of changes every now and then. And sometimes they're painful ones. Yeah, I mean, right? I mean, changing workflows. There's all these human factors that aren't about the actual commits, how they get there, how you work with them, what gets approved, what's the dialogue that has to go through to get it approved. How do you make that work? And that's going to change when you have 10 contributors or 10,000 contributors and over time. And maybe you could argue there was a time where technical excellency was of absolute importance, especially when you're competing with a lot of cutthroat commercial companies. And I don't think there's, I don't think he's saying it's not of utmost importance. I haven't seen anything that says that, you know, just because you're nice means your patch gets accepted, right? That right. doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be really interesting long-term to see if he can stick to this and how long is he gone for. He writes about seeing folks at the Maintainer Summit, but he doesn't really say how long he's going to be gone either. Yeah. Greg will finish up this kernel and we'll see about the next. Yeah. So he just says, yeah, I'll be out for 419. But 419 is fairly far. It's at RC4 right now. So it's pretty far in the development process. Something tells me he might not be back for 420. 
we will just have to wait and see. And then once he does come back, we have to wait and see if there actually is a tone change. Yeah, right. I mean, he's setting this from the top. How does that filter down through all the levels of contributors? And how does that affect, you know, new people joining the project and how it goes? Does anybody in the mumble room have any thoughts on the Linus stepping down for a bit or him trying to take care of himself and, you know, fix himself up for a bit? Yeah, I mean, um, give another uh, Libre Application Summit plug. Uh, Cassidy did a talk about technical problems versus social problems. And the fact that as technical people, we always want to concentrate on how to solve things with code. And sometimes we forget that solving social problems is a often faster and more effective way to get the results that we want. So I think it's really important for someone like Linus to say, hey, you know what? Social problems are actually important too. And we need to really think about the kind of problems that we're creating for ourselves by not addressing them. Yeah. I have I have at times come on the air and kind of defended the way Linus works because of the results seem to me to speak for themselves. Uh, but then I kind of I, – I, this week when this news came out, I kind of put myself in the position of, well, what if I talk to my team this way? Like what if I just like, you know, just, just tore you up for doing something, you know, uh, like what if you made a mistake and land and I just – I ripped you up for it? Like yeah. that would not be um, – Productive. Yeah, there's this, there's is that element of, you know, it, it wouldn't fly in a workplace or other professional environment where you expect to have standards about how people interact with you, even when they're upset or you're being chastised. Yeah. And just because it's an open source project, now maybe if it's, you know, your open source project that you've been doing for by yourself with for two years in, in your basement, okay, you set the standards, but Linux is not there anymore. Yeah, and remember, it's, you know, partially governed by that foundation too, which may play roles in some of this. Brent, you've noticed a trend though in just project leads sort of stepping back and some officially, some unofficially. Yeah, it feels like maybe once a month on the show here, we talk about someone who's either stepping back officially or unofficially just to take a break or go traveling or try to find themselves. I mean, you're kind of taking a little bit of a forced break, aren't you? So just wondering if, you know, some of these well, most of the people in the open source community are so dedicated, and yet maybe they're not taking enough time for themselves. Yeah, especially hard when it's a passion project. Right. I mean, how many like single-person distros do we worry about and talk about? Because you see, like, well, can they support it? And when life changes, will there be people to fall back so it keeps going? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I hope he is able to take this time, and I hope it is productive for him. Uh, I do think it would be good, not just for getting more people involved with the project, because it's entirely possible that people have been scared away from contributing to Linux. Uh, it seems to be that's what Greg infers um, in, a, in a post we're about to talk about, is that people have been scared away from the project, that the existing code of conflict hasn't worked, and Linus has sort of been the representation of that. But more than that, I think it could be good long-term for the reputation of Linux. Um, I think a lot of times when Linus kind of goes off the handle and then people report on it, it kind of puts Linux in that uh, amateur light a little bit. And I think it can be easy too if if you are you know more thick skinned. It can be like, well, okay, like I can take it. I know I know where Linus is, Linus is coming from. I know his intention is just to get good patches. Yeah. But it's also easy if you're like, well, I could spend my time. I'm a smart developer contributing to this project. Or oh, I see like oh those three BSD guys. They're really nice. They don't yell at anyone. Maybe that's just my preferred work style. I'm gonna go over there. We do see that actually. We do see that and. Um, you know, I think what we're about to get into is the second bit of news. If Linus stepping down for a bit and handing the reins over to Greg, uh, that in itself would have been a huge story for this week that we could talk about uh, all day. But I think it has to be held in context with also the new change in the code of conduct. 
So in the past, the Linux kernel, for not, for not a long time, but for a few years now, has had a code of conflict that essentially outlined the, the rules for conflict if it arises. And this week, uh, submitted before Linus's resignation email, he committed a code of conduct change. Now, the introduction here is written by Greg, KH, and uh, I think it's important that we get into this. He writes, the code of conflict is not achieving its implicit goal of fostering civility and the spirit of being excellent to each other. So that's Greg right there writing that it's not currently achieving its goal. It's not working for us. The code of conflict is not working. He then writes, explicit guidelines have demonstrated success in other projects and other areas of the kernel. I, I can't speak to any authority if the code of conflict has worked or not. Greg is in a better position than I to know if they need a code of conduct. And we're probably going to argue and debate the, the specifics of what that code might look like. But I think it's interesting to see the reasons and the goals that Greg in particular here and the, the kernel maintainers are looking for. He writes, here is a new code of conduct statement for the wider kernel. It's based on the contributor covenant as described at www.contributor-covenant.org. From this point forward... We should abide by these rules in order to help make the kernel community a welcoming environment to participate in. So to, to appreciate the new code of conduct, I want to read to you the old code of conflict, which is just two paragraphs. It's pretty simple. It goes, The Linux kernel development effort is a very personal process compared to, quote, traditional ways of developing software. Your code and your ideas behind it will be carefully reviewed, often resulting in critique and criticism. The review will almost always require improvements to the code before it can be included in the kernel. Know that this happens because everyone involved wants to see the best possible solution for the overall success of Linux. The development process has been proven to create the most robust operating system kernel ever, and we do not want to do anything to cause the quality of submissions and eventual result to ever decrease. If, however, anyone feels personally abused, threatened, or otherwise uncomfortable due to this process, that is not acceptable. If so, please contact the Linux Foundation's Technical Advisory Board or the individual members, and they will work to resolve the issue to the best of their ability. For more information on who is the Technical Advisory Board and their roles, please see, and then they insert the URL. That is essentially the entire code of conflict. It's pretty straightforward. It essentially says, be nice to each other, expect to have... Um, a few conflicts here and there because everybody's really passionate. That's essentially what it's saying. Right. You're not going to no project this size is going to have no conflicts. Right. It's not a rule on how to communicate. It's a set of rules to guide conflict. That's changed now. The new Contributor Covenant Code of Conduct really lays out the rules and guidelines to ha on how to communicate within the project. It starts with a pledge. The, code, the Contributor Covenant Code of Conduct starts with this. In the interest of fostering opening and welcoming environments, we as contributors and maintainers pledge to make participation in our project and our community a harassment-free experience for everyone. Examples of behavior that contribute to creating a positive environment include using welcoming and inclusive language, being respectful of differing viewpoints and experiences, gracefully accepting constructive criticism, focusing on what is best for the community, and showing empathy towards other community members. Now, I would pause here that, so we got inclusive language, which is a bit vague, uh, but being respectful to different viewpoints and experiences, that's, that is an area that I think is actually pretty important. And to that end, we may have to consider being inclusive to Linus himself, who perhaps, like some of the many other developers I've met in my life, 
has a certain type of personality that is very driven. It is unempathetic. It's the kind of personality that has the audacity to think they can create a world-dominating operating system. And when he announces Linux, he starts humbly. But just the idea that you could go out there and create something better than what Bell Labs had made or what people staffed at universities getting hundreds of thousands of dollars a year could create, to have the viewpoint that you could make something better, uh, that takes sort of an absurd personality. It takes somebody who's maybe a bit obtuse in other areas. I've met many of developers that are totally normal personalities, totally normal, normal social lives, all that kind of stuff. But I've also met a lot of developers that maybe are a bit off socially. They're a bit off on the personality. They may even have a personality disorder that prevents them from having all of the tools necessary to understand someone else's emotions. And if that is the case, then we must also be inclusive of them. And Linus may be one of those people. Right. I mean, you have, you have people on the, on the thick-skinned side of things, and you have people on the thin-skinned. And I don't think it's right that either side gets to dictate entirely that you, they meet on their side. We need to find a good way in the middle where you can still be yourself, but there are guidelines for people from way different backgrounds and experiences and styles of communicating so that you can all work productively together. Yes. Now, so far, all of this is pretty common sense. You know, nothing really too, too concerning in any of the language. You know, some people can make the argument, you don't need to define this stuff. But I think looking at the discourse of the modern internet, I think it's probably pretty clear you do need to define some of these things because the internet can be a dumpster fire of comments and horrible things. And we certainly see it in other things, right? I mean, you have you have these roles when you work for a business or are part of a, a community or a volunteer organization. I mean, even we go to Linux Fest Northwest every year, they they have a code of conduct as well. Right. And I think it's it's I think I wanna I wanna separate out the use of a code of conduct with the specific code of conduct they have now implemented. Yeah, I, think I think those that's, are... That, that's important. I yeah. Mean, they're different things. And I'll tell you, there's one area, and there's a few in here that concern me, but there's one area that that jumped out at me as a potential issue. And it's, it's about... It's two things, really. The maintainers have the right, it, re- it reads, and responsibility to remove, edit, or reject comments, commits, code, wiki edits, wiki edits, issues and other contributions that are not aligned to this code of conduct or to ban temporarily or permanently any contributor for other behaviors that they deem, quote, inappropriate, threatening, or offensive or harmful. Some vagary there, but pretty understandable. What is inappropriate? What, what is offensive? Those are all things that'll have to be fleshed out as that happens, unfortunately. The enforcers are going to be key to this thing working right. Yes. The, the, the level-headedness that they go with this, the balance that they take, is going to make or break this thing. And we are watching a massive experiment now unfold. We are watching a fairly well-defined but vague language code of conduct be applied to one of the world's most important software projects ever on a massive public scale. And now we're going to see how it gets implemented, and how it gets enforced. And there is an area where there could be particular chances for abuse. They write, this code of conduct applies with both within the project spaces and in public spaces when an individual is representing the project or its community. Examples. Now, I like this. They define the examples of this. This is good. Examples of representing a project or community include using an official project email address. Makes sense. Posting on an official social media account, like the project's Twitter account or something. Or acting as an appointed representative at an online or offline event. Clearly defined, these are public spaces in which this code of conduct is still going to apply to you. Right. But then the next sentence sort of undoes all of those examples and just makes it really vague and arbitrary. Representation of a project may be further defined and clarified by project maintainers. 
i.e. the people that are in charge of enforcement can decide what qualifies as representation at the time of enforcement is how I read that. And by putting that in there, they completely undo all of the specific examples where you could clearly define when you're representing the project. That kind of vagary, I, I think, can lead to abuse. I mean, it also depends, I think, how, how it's applied, right? You, you said it really well. This is a tool for the, the maintainers in the community. It can be used poorly or, or it could be used well. And, you know, if you've defined these things up ahead, maybe there's a new, a new thing you're attending and the maintainers want you to know that you are going to be a representative. That's okay. If after the fact they say, you know, you were really representative there and you didn't behave correctly— that's where it really could get into trouble. And and who defines what that what the what the borders are there? So say you know you're part of a project. Uh, so you're part of the closure project now, and you go to an event to to go to a closure booth, and you're there representing this project. Well, let's say later on you decide to go out and get a few drinks with some people at the event, and you post a, a, a selfie of getting super wasted at a bar on your Twitter feed. Are you a public representative all of a sudden still? Like, where does the border, it needs to be really, that, that kind is of something stuff. That needs, yeah, it needs to be discussed. If and, I could get you kicked out of the project, you need to be really clear where the line is. Right. And then it, this also doesn't really discuss what are that, you know, is it your ban the first time? Are there warnings? What is the procedure there so that people, you know, have recourse and feel like they're being fairly treated after being accused of these guidelines? I don't know. Eric, you point out it really comes down to who the enforcers are and how they behave. Yeah, that's that's where my concern lies, because if if your enforcers are more thin skinned, then you've you've got a problem because it seems like a very critical and understood part of, I mean, just the development process is you're you're hanging out at a, at a hack fest or something and and you and two other developers get into this huge argument over, you know, what sort of encryption screen encryption scheme to use and you fight it out, you argue about it and then you, you come to some kind of decision and, and go grab a beer. But someone who's external to to the community, someone who's external to that that process, you know, having been there multiple times as a, as a systems engineer, it's part of the process. It's it, it's almost necessary. Yeah, especially when people are passionate. I mean, we could what if this thing quite a bit. I think, but your core point about how the enforcement gets done and who does it, I think, is the takeaway because it's, you know, if they use if they're wise and they use good judgment then it really could be a productive tool. I think it shows our trust in, in that community, right? Like, do we think that the maintainers are, are mature people who, who have in good faith and care about the community and really do want what's best, or are they just going to use this to further whatever agenda that they were going to do? I'll also say that while this does add some specifics, and as we're talking about, in some ways not enough specifics, before with the Code of Conflict, none of this was covered, and they still had all that power, right? The maintainers can still do what they want. They're True. still in charge. True. So we're just getting some more rules. They just might not be enough or the right type of rules. I'm not big on rules. Um, you know, the biggest problem with this particular code of conduct that I see is the language used demands the members of the community are a certain way and holds them to some really fairly good-sounding standards. But the trouble is overreach tends to creep in, and a code of conduct should be a document that describes what will get you kicked out rather than the criteria being allowed for you to stay. Do you follow what I'm saying? So I would a code of conduct to me should clearly tell you where the boundaries are and what the repercussions are rather than defining how you need to behave to stay. I think there, there might be room for both just in from the, the different backgrounds thing because if the focus really is on, you know, this isn't a place to, sh to shoot the shit. This isn't a place to just have fun discussions with friends. Like, we care about kernel maintainership. We care about the kernel. Now, I agree that it, there should be both. We should be clear about what is totally not acceptable, what, what are the consequences. But it might be useful in the same way where you have, you know, style for your code and the way your patch has to be formatted. Maybe there's some amount of rules that can say, like, and here's the, for the phrases that are helpful to us and will facilitate a quick and easy discussion of your code. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think the other, other aspect of the code of conflict, which kind of appealed to me, and I wonder if there couldn't have been an opportunity to just extend that, um, is the universal problem with rulemaking is it is much easier to introduce a rule than it is to remove a rule. Absolutely, yes. And it's, you know, you see this everywhere in companies and governments, any bureaucratic institution. They never get repealed. You just add more on. <laughs> yeah. And that's my, that's my, that's my other kind of concern, um, I think too, you know, there's other, there's, there's all the, obviously other voices. RMS responded to the code of conduct and said, I disapprove of strict codes of conduct. They feel rigid and repressive to me. That's what he says. And I, I, I tend to agree with that. It does feel rigid a bit. Get it out of here. Uh, he also says, however, since I've never participated in Linux development, the Linux code <laughs> of conduct will not affect me. Of course not. He says, however... And he's never I, even installed the darn thing. Yeah, I do note that Linux is a kernel and nothing more. Linux kernel is redundant. Uh, and then he goes into the history of the GNU project, which is so classic RMS. I would have almost been disappointed had he not. But the core point about what about... Uh, adopting a different code of conduct, maybe one that didn't have so much political charge around it. Yeah, I like that discussion. I mean, are there ways we can do this better? How about just a very simple one, which just says, don't be a jerk? I mean, is that enough? Well, I, I think people are saying it is not. I think I think what Greg was saying is that it was insufficient. Being excellent to each other did not work out. Um, but with with great responsibility comes, <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, all that kind of superhero stuff. I did like, uh, I did like Dom Getter online. He, he proposed the no code of conduct, code of conduct, uh, NCOC for short. Uh, it's a new idea designed to help find communities and projects that will not get stuck endlessly debating how members should behave. <laughs> um, it's a, it's to be adults to each other is, uh, is the other one. Um, Gen 2 actually has a fairly good code of conduct that I wonder if the Linux kernel could not have adopted. I think the core issue here really is that the uh, code of conduct that they chose itself is very politically charged. The core author, this, you know, the primary author of it is a political activist, and uh, they are sort of a big personality. They're, they're well known in that circle. They have a very strong opinion. And I, it, it seems to draw a lot of controversy. If they had adopted another community's code of conduct or maybe chosen to extend their existing one and not chosen one that seems to be one of the most politically charged out there and then tied to an author with a bold and loud personality, we may have avoided a ton of this upset. And I wonder why that wasn't the direction. It almost felt like, ah, hands up. We don't, we don't have time to deal with this. Just go adopt this popular one. Yeah, I, I wonder if it was like that or if it, how, mu- how much has this been discussed behind the scenes that we're not aware of? Right. And like how much can we spend some energy for everyone who's concerned? And I, I think there are legitimate concerns, of course. Can we spend that time saying like, how can we change this? How can we? Because it is, yes, it, it does come from a weird background. But I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, these are, this is, they copied the parts they want and can change it as much as they want. Right. So future commits could make this whatever we need it to be. There is now, though, that looming discussion of, is there going to be a fork? Uh, somebody on the uh, Git, re- Git uh, post where they uh, announced the new code of conduct says, I would civilly suggest that this commit, if it's not reverted, then I hope the kernel will be forked and stripped of this code of conduct and available for distribution package managers for easy installation and kept in parity with the current kernel. A move such as this will inevitably not bring about what the code of conduct intends to bring, but will dilute contributions to the project, create more conflict, and punish individuals and excommunicate those who have wrong opinions or politics, and push merit aside and bring forth his demise. Fork the kernel. Come on, that's like the most negative possible way of looking at it. 
That, Welcome that to the internet, to, Alex. <laughs> well, yeah, fair, fair point. <laughs> yeah, I agree though. It's very like it's very much um, it's 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 all merit based, right? Like everybody's upset because we're switching from a merit based system now to something else, but they're not accepting the merit based decisions of the current leaders at the same time. Like if it's if it's merit based and you like the way it worked, then you should be accepting of the people in charge's decisions because it's all merit based right now. So which one is it? You can't have it both ways. I, like I said earlier, not a fan of more rules. I generally think what we're doing here is probably going to create more bureaucracy around the development of the Linux kernel. I also think the Linux kernel is in a market position and in a maturity where it can handle this and not be the end of the world. Right. I mean, I think it's interesting, too, because it has been, you know, this is a change after a long-running project where we see a lot of other projects that have come along and either added it with much less drama or have just started with it, right? Things like Curl or Kubernetes that are seemingly doing just fine or have massive momentum, but adding it after the fact, after a long community that already has its own norms and values, that's a, that's a, that can be dicey. Yeah, it's really going to be about watching where this thing goes. Yeah, and these are these these agreements and conditions are, you know, they're an aspect of that community, and each community, even with the same language, is going to interpret that and handle it differently. Will we see people getting kicked out? Uh, will we see people's, people's speech being suppressed? Or will we see civility uh, improve on the mailing list? These are all questions that we just won't have answers to until we watch this thing play out. And we really won't know until Linus has been back for a while, and we see maybe new contributors come along, and we maybe hear from people if it's made a difference or not. We just won't know. Right. We need stories about, like, I wanted to contribute, but I couldn't because of this. Or, you know, the, the reverse. People said, like, I didn't want to contribute before, but, hey, now I feel better that I'll be respected and I want to be a part of the community. It's, it's, uh, it's one of these situations where I think it's worth not overreacting. It's worth taking a measured approach. And I don't want to disparage anybody who thinks this is a great idea, and I don't really want to disparage anybody who has great concerns about this. And I've heard from all of you. I've heard from those of you who felt like they shouldn't contribute before, and I've heard from those of you who believe this will be the end of the Linux kernel, and you are looking for another boat to jump to. People are, a lot of people are joking that they're going to switch to OpenBSD this week. I've heard a lot of that. <laughs> uh, I, I just think that's all we can do right now. Yeah, we just have to we just have to wait and see. Does a fork become really popular, and that's where the community goes, or does the kernel just keep keep on going? If I had a DeLorean that could get up to eighty eight miles per hour, I might go back and try to convince them maybe adopt a different code of conduct just to avoid some of this, even if it's heavily inspired by. Twenty five years ago, or whatever it was, when Linus put out was it ninety three on the the Minix mailing list or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, open source was it just was nowhere. It just wasn't. It just wasn't even a thing. Right. And like, like Wes said a few minutes ago, you know, you've got projects now like Kubernetes and loads and loads of other massive open source projects that have been born as a consequence of the open source movement. People now have a lot better idea about how to behave and how to conduct themselves in these scenarios. I do think, you know, you can't just have an, an open door and just say, you know, like I said earlier, don't just be a jerk. I think there has to be a little more structure to it than that. But honestly, I think we're at a point now where it's quite well self-policing and governed as a, as a as a movement. You know? Yeah, I think that's likely the case. And I I I think we'll learn more. Perhaps we'll learn about the Linux Foundation's role in uh, this change. Um, you know, they that are, is a good question. They I did notice they are the ones that you report to if you have enforcement issues. Um, it's tab at linuxfoundation.org, which is the technical advisory board. So that's interesting. I would be um, delighted to learn the backstory there. But 
I think for now, I'll just leave it to the audience. Let us know what you think. Linuxunplugged.com slash contact. Send us in your thoughts. The range of it, with uh, you know, I'm trying to soak in as many thoughts and opinions. This is one of those things where it takes me more than a week to really come to uh, some sort of... We're still in the sort of the, the stunned silence yeah, phase of this, right? It was just like two days ago. Yeah, it's been literally just like a day and a half, really, yeah. since we've learned about this. So it's still, a, you know, I'm processing. Sometimes I come on in a week or two and my, my position has changed a little bit, but... I think that's where I want to end it now, and I'd like to hear for the audience's opinion on it too, on the Unplugged Show. So let's transition to our new goodies that we got this week. Kind of perks of becoming Linux Academy employees is everybody gets to pick a machine, and Linux Academy has a policy: you pick your own operating system. And Wes and I had been kicking around the idea of these ThinkPad T480s, buying them personally, which was taking us forever because that's a good chunk. You, know, of you want to make the right choice, and so they arrived late yesterday. So Wes is about to unbox his right now on the show. You you ready, Wes? It's exciting, right? It's a thin ThinkPad box that's the ThinkPad T480 designed for serious business. And we got it with uh, a couple of extra options. <laughs> I love it. Little theater of the mind there. <laughs> Get it out of there, Wes. Yeah. You, it's light, right? It is light. Yeah. Now look at this. Yeah. Yeah. Now it doesn't, it doesn't have the. No, but it does have a, it does have a three cell battery built in right Just now. Just built right in. Mm-hmm. Uh. So I'll talk about, I'll talk why you get your, why you open it up and get your first impressions on, uh, which uh, I think would be really good. I, I'd love to hear, but I'll tell you about the specs. Okay. Here's the hardware that we got in these. So these are the Lenovo ThinkPad T480s, not 480Ss. People have wondered. They weigh 3.6 pounds. This is light. I mean, I can, one hand, I can I hold know. this for hours. It's got a, uh, we got them with the 14 inch IPS 1080p display. So we decided not to go 4K on these ones. I already, having used mine for a little bit longer than Wes has, obviously, I'm already very thankful of of uh, going 1080p because there are certain apps that have never gotten high DPI that I've really strained my eyes to use, and now they just look glorious on this IPS display. It's got an 8th generation i7-8650U, runs at 1.9 gigahertz base, turbos up to 4.2 gigahertz, although there's a caveat there. We'll get into that. Yeah. These suckers have 32 gigabytes of DDR4 RAM. So screw you, MacBook, with your 16 gig limit. (laughs) One terabyte PCIe MVNE drives in them. Oh, yeah. And then the way these Lenovo's work, which is pretty fancy, is as a three-cell built-in battery. They don't call it that. They call it like a power station because they got to brand it. It was just silly, right? But then we also got it with the additional six-cell battery that snaps into the back. So you get the three cell and the six cell combined. And on my first night of testing, I actually failed to run the battery down, even when I left it running downloading for a while overnight. So I right now running Plasma Neon 1804, I'm estimating about 10 hours of battery life. 10 that's, hours. That is that's more than I need. I mean, that's fantastic. That's all-day battery. That is all-day battery, all-workday battery. It's got Intel wireless in them, and then some of the best parts really is the connectivity. Along the right edge, there's two USB 3 Gen 1 Type-A ports, and uh, one of them is also a Thunderbolt port where you can you charge the device over USB-C. It's got HDMI out. It has gigabit Ethernet, a full Ethernet jack. Full jack. Audio jack, SD card slot, and the security lock slot that Lenovo's have. Um, yeah, do you say that? It has, it has a headphone jack, Chris. Yeah. That's, you got you to be specific these I days. I know, right? Pretty, pretty freaking exciting. Um, and it's also a certified Ubuntu machine. Great viewing Uh, angles on this screen. Yeah, yeah, it is. ArchWiki is pretty sparse on this machine because basically everything works, with the exception of a throttling bug that the T480s, as well as several other models of uh, Lenovo's and even a Dell have, 
which uh, we'll, we have the, we'll have the specifics linked in the show notes, but it turns out there's an issue with throttling that only exists on Linux. It, it, it really comes down to Intel and their crappy data sheets. The cause is simply that there is an activation offset in the master temperature control target register, which they flip some bits. And so essentially the issue is, is the, is the kernel, uh, it prevents the CPU from boosting all the way to 4.2 gigahertz. On some systems, it'll go like around 3.5 gigahertz, mm. maybe even 3.9 gigahertz in some cases, but it won't stay there because of this stupid freaking bug that exists. It's just part of, you know, it's just, a, it was really a typo on Intel's part. Um, and as, as all things in Linux, there's actually a workaround script up on GitHub that will fix this issue, but it involves turning off secure boot. Uh, it required a couple of, oh yeah, you can't have thermal D installed to monitor the temperature stuff. Oh, okay. So it's not a perfect mm. fix. So we are technically limited in max performance right now because of this bug. And it would require a firmware update on Lenovo's part to fix it. Now, they have released two firmware updates for these machines for Linux. And as we talked about, we should be able to use them right from Linux. Right, because they're now part of the LVFS project. So there may be a fix inbound or could try this experimental script. I'm curious. We'll have to do some benchmarks yeah. with this script and really see, like, you know, how much does it really affect and what of, what of our potential workloads will actually benefit. Right, yeah, because I did some testing with the remote connection software that we use to remote back to the studio, and it did great. It did better than most laptops do, so... I'm I'm pretty happy with it. We'll have some additional resources though if you want to know more about that or read some reviews for the uh, T480 with Linux. But uh, we're doing things a little differently this time. So first of all, one of the things that I really like is that Wes and I got identical laptops. And those of you who've listened to the show for a while might know that one of my ways of achieving like um, solid production is trying to have duplicates of machines so that way we can swap machines if we need to or swap parts and everything's compatible, or move a hard drive image to another system when, if, like, a laptop fries and we're live on location. You know, there's having two of, of, the, of the machines that you use to get on the air is just, it's, it's almost a necessity, really, if you're doing a lot of live broadcasts or a lot of on-the-road productions. And so that was the main driver for us getting exactly identical systems is if Wes and I are in an event and one of us is having a technical issue that's preventing us from recording a show, we can we can part swap. Or we, could we just have all the right dongles or batteries. Yeah. Or, yeah. If I get a dock here in the studio or another power adapter, you can use it. Oh, perfect. You know, there's all those things that are just, I think, really, really great about having two identical machines. Uh, but I, this time around, and I'm curious what you're going to do differently, this time around, I'm leaving Windows on it, which I never what? do. I never do that. But I've shrunk the partition down, so it's like a 90 gig uh, Linux, or I mean, sorry, 90 gig partition for Windows, and then the rest of the terabyte drive is for Linux. Yeah, that's pretty reasonable. I thought, you know, maybe for some funky firmware thing, or maybe some game might come out someday, or some, like my Garmin in my RV can only be updated from Windows. Right. Maybe a guest has some software they can only use to communicate. We got to bring them in on Windows just that once. Maybe. You never know. I mean, I, I really have not needed Windows for years, but I just thought if I'm getting a licensed version of Windows Pro and I got a terabyte drive, I could burn 90 gigs and have it there just in case. Plus, I've now mounted that partition under Linux, which can be kind of handy when using Wine and that stuff. Can be, that can be really nice, yeah. So that's one thing I'm doing differently is I'm, I think for now, I don't know if I'll keep it that way. I could see myself like reloading this machine um, and I could see myself blowing windows away. <laughs> I mean, at some point, if, you know, if like six, six months, months go by yeah, and you're like, I just it. haven't used it. Yeah. The other thing too is you can always shrink it as much as you want. And That's then true. Take a little backup of it and we could keep it on a server somewhere. So That's, yeah, throw if it you on the send it back for factory maintenance or whatever, you can lay that disk image back down. 
Um, so that's one thing I'm doing differently. I also opted not to go Kubuntu. I decided to go Neon 1804, even though it's still kind of in the testing. I just, I wanted to be You're on. right on that edge, Yeah, man. I, I, well, I like the fresh plasma. Fresh, hot plasma. But you get the, the LTS base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those are, what are you, are you doing anything differently? Are you going to do a different distro? Are you going to keep Windows? What's your Well, plan? I've been debating Kubuntu. I've been enjoying plasma a lot, and yeah. it, it makes a pretty nice, I don't know, GNOME works pretty well for me for just like terminal and browsing the web, but when I have a lot of windows open and I really want some like complicated window management or I need to manage multiple workspaces, mm-hmm. Plasma has a little bit of an edge in just extensibility. Yeah, yeah I, And you've yeah, I been agree. using it a lot, so it would be nice again in that same vein if you need to use my laptop. It's true, it's true. Um, so I was looking at maybe maybe the latest Kubuntu, but yeah. you're tempting me with that knee. I'm going to be curious what you yeah. see. I mean, I, I think Kubuntu is so rock solid. Like if you want a true workhorse, then I think you're, you know, and it's 1804 base too. We've also got enough space. I'm debating, you know, maybe I'll keep Windows 2. Uh, uh, yeah. Maybe get like just LTS Kubuntu on there, set up, ready to go, all the software we need. That's like your workhorse distro. Backup workhorse. And then have other space for like distro that. of the week and or just whatever. That's a good know. idea. Yeah. Because we do that a lot. I probably should have left a little space on mine because we do that a fair amount. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about giving Project Trident a go for a week. You know, just live on Project Trident. I am debating uh, some some ZFS on root really? here for this guy. Yeah, we'll see. Ooh, we'll that'd see. be fun to hear. Yeah. So uh, you know, we've already kind of covered it, but we also wanted to call out what's important to us when designing and building and then selecting and purchasing a work machine. Because if this was a machine for me just to bop around the RV or something like that, I may have gone with an XPS thirteen. That'd be really tempting. Yeah. Or maybe a Galago. Like, I, I don't think I would have necessarily picked a ThinkPad T480 for my personal, just like stick it on the couch and use it for browsing the internet just for fun. But when it came to a work machine, I needed these quote unquote legacy ports that all of my current audio hardware uses USB A, Ethernet to transfer multi gig uh, files. Yes. And I mean, just for live streaming, you can't beat Ethernet. Yeah. And, and being able to pick the whole package 14 inches, 3.6 pounds, 10 hours of battery life. Which even if in, in heavy production, that works out to be five or eight. I'm st- fine. Fine. Yeah. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. They're, not the, mo- they're not, the, not the most beautiful. I think they have their own sort of elegance. But you can tell they're, while light, they're, they're rugged. You know, they've been building ThinkPads yeah. for a long time They now. do feel rugged. With those batteries, don't forget, you can do the Noah Chalaya trick of pulling one out and shoving a new one in. Yeah. And it doesn't have to reboot or anything. Keeps going because yeah. that built-in three-cell mm. keeps going. It's great. How do you find the nipple in the middle of the, the they call it a track point, don't they? How yeah, do you find that? I, you know, I've used it a bit. It's not bad. I kind of actually like it. The, the The track point is decent. The track pad is one of the better ones on a PC laptop. It's got some grit to it. Um, and it's it's one of those where you click the whole track pad. I don't like that part too much. So that's why I've sort of been preferring the nipple. Yeah, I have more experience with, with the Dell's version of the nipple, but I do kind of like it. It's nice. I don't use it for everything, but... When you're just using the mouse, you want to go real quick, it can be handy. It's nice, too, because I disable the trackpad as soon as I connect my Bluetooth Logitech MX, which I love the Logitech MX Anywhere series of mice. For, yeah. They're the best mice for, for a laptop. And so I keep one in my bag. Um, and so as soon as I connect that, I have the trackpad disabled, so that way I don't ever have any like mistaken touches while I'm typing. That keyboard is the best keyboard I've used in a laptop in probably seven, eight years. Yeah, decent travel. It's quiet, which is nice for broadcasting. Feels good on the fingers. And I, I have RSI issues and the MacBook keyboard triggers them because I, I'm just a, you know, I'm, I'm an old man now. I just type really heavy. I'm used to the mechanical keyboards. I grew up on the IBM PS2s and things like that. So I was clank, 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 clank. 
and I smash my fingers into the MacBook, and I, I have to constantly remind myself, don't type so hard. But when I get going, I just get going. You just get going. You're passionate. Not, not an issue on the ThinkPad. Not an issue at all. It's one of the best laptop keyboards I've felt in a really long time. Um, and so what are your first impressions of it? Now you've had it out of the box for a moment. What do you think? I like it. I think this is going to be just a really good, that's it. It's, it's not flashy, but it is. it just feels like I can sit down. I'll know that it's going to boot up. It's going to be ready to go. And it's got the guts to perform when we need it to. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, also I want to talk a little bit about some of the tweaks that we're going to make to the machine to use it in production. Both Wes and I have been experimenting with a project called KX Studio. And KX Studio is like a series of packages or repos that you can overlay on your distribution and bring in a bunch of cross-platform pro audio applications. It's a huge collection of different ones, specifically some that are used to set up jack audio, which I'm just beginning to really wrap my head around because for a, for a full mobile machine where I'm recording my microphone and I got a soundboard and I'm recording my, my remote host and all of that, I got to use something more sophisticated than just straight pulse audio. I need to start creating virtual sound devices and capturing them to specific files. Yeah, I mean, when you think about all the equipment we've got up here in the studio, mm -hmm. it can be, it's a challenge to get all of that Put working. All in a laptop. In a laptop, yeah. We've done it before, and uh, but not with Jack, but we've done it before using external audio devices and sophisticated routing. And the goal here is to do it all in software. We'll see. We have members that join us in the mumble room fairly frequently that are using Jack audio with reliability. And have great things to say about it. And there are tools with Jack Audio that allow you to draw a connection from one audio device to another audio device. Like you're patching wires, and it's a visual thing. It's really cool. Uh, it's uh, the applications like Katina or something like that. Do you remember? I know you've been playing with it a yeah, bit too. Yeah, I mean, there's there's several. There's the whole the, like the the cadence suite of applications. Cadence, that's what it was. Yes, cadence. Thank and you. cadence itself is like a nice GUI that'll help you get Jack all set up. It's got stuff like, you know, also impulse bridges yeah. built into it. And then Katia, C-A-T-I-A, is the Jack Patch Bay software that lets you drag and draw to different devices. Which it really is, neat. it's just such a nice model, you know, where you, you get these Jack clients and they show up and you've got inputs and outputs and then you, you can just connect them however you want and Jack handles the rest. And our favorite recording software that we use now under Linux to record our podcast, Reaper, has full support for Jack devices. Oh, it works so nicely. So they show up as input channels. It's just brilliant. So I can, I could, you know, have a Jack device that is just my microphone and I can record that as a separate track in Reaper. I can have a Jack device that's just Wes when he's remote or if I'm remote and that goes on a channel. I mean... The potential is 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 huge, and uh, that's one of the tweaks we're going to be making. I've got the KX Studio repositories. I've got Cadia and a few other things installed, but I don't really have not really wrapped my head around how to actually create virtual in and out devices and stuff like that. That's like the next stage I'm going to be going to. But my hope is in a month or two, I've got this thing down pretty well, and KDE Neon is going to be stabilized by then, and I'm going to have a pretty sore, serious remote mobile workstation. This fans don't kick up when I connect back to the studio. Right, yes. And I think, I mean, I think some of the KX Studio 1804 repos are also stabilizing a bit. So, you know, wait and see. Not everything's going to be perfect. It does make me think, too, we need to, you know, we should do, we'll try to do a good job documenting this, too, because mm. I know, I mean, it'd be good for you guys to see, but also on our for end, us, yeah. if we just need to redo something really quick, we don't want to be futzing with it. Yeah, I don't want to make it like a holy install that I can't touch. No, no, no gotta absolutely be, not. Got to be able to nuke and pave and reset it up. And I think we can get there. Because it just putzing around. You and I have made some progress just, you know, individually. Very excited about it. They're just, they just, you know, I used the machine all night and all day yesterday. It came at noon. So I got it at noon yesterday Ooh. and just immediately went just to work. tore right into <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Oh, my God. So I booted into Windows for the first time just to, like, log into my account that Linux Academy had created and, and you know, log in and do any of those firmware updates. But they'd all 
they'd taken care of all that. But uh, I was just curious, you know, he's like, what's this like? What's this environment like? It's so bad. <laughs> Windows, like when you search for Windows update in the start menu, you get like everything but Windows update. You get like the Windows update settings and Windows update hours and all these things that are not Windows updates. Just actually doing the updates. You, yeah, if you write check for updates, then you get, I mean, it's just Windows 10 has got so much going on. It's blurking at me with OEM messages and blurking at me with, with Microsoft messages about installing Defender. When I first logged in, my CPU was completely pegged for like five minutes. And so I launch, you know, I do control it, delete to go use the new task manager, but now they got a baby task manager that it brings <laughs> yeah, up. Right. So I, I got to click something else to get a decent task manager now. And then I look at it and 98% of, or it was two CPUs or something. It's just completely being dominated by the Windows Defender doing a malware scan of my system because apparently the first login of my account ever was the time to do that. Yeah, that's what you want as your first run experience. So, I, you know, I open up the machine. Literally the first time I log in, the fans are going like crazy. Like there's so much stuff going on. I'm like, this is awful. This is this is horrible. Could not download that KDE Neon 1804 preview ISO fast how that, enough. How did that install go? Oh, beautiful, beautiful. The Secure only, boot worked fine. Oh yeah, and, oh yeah. Secure boots on using uh, UEFI, no mm-hmm. problem. The only thing that was a little tricky was you know I I decided to install Gparted to shrink the partition mm-hmm. because I just find that the cute Unity ish whatever that ins- ubiquity installer is that they're using for Kubuntu and KDE Neon. The partitioner is just, it's not great. Like the fields are too narrow. You got to expand it all out. You always got to, you got to stretch the window out and make it bigger. And then you got to click on the partition and click change. You can't just double click. It's just dense. It's, it's just hard to be Gparted for just getting some yeah, serious so disk work done. I flipped over to Gparted, did some of my heavy lifting there, resized the NTFS partition there, did a safety reboot back into Windows to make sure everything was good, booted back into the Neon installer, and then it just did the installation like normal. Went flawless. Beautiful. And since since Neon's been installed, man, the, I, I, it's just been beautifully fast. Like it's just incredibly fast boot. I got it all got I got plasma totally customized the way I like it in an evening. And this is with like all your electron apps. Oh yeah. I, I'm running Slack and I'm running MailSpring and I'm running Telegram and I'm running all that stuff all the time. And each using KDE Windows rules, they're, they're assigned to their specific Windows oh. their desktops and with specific window constraints. And it's just great. It's just great. Super fast. I installed a couple of Steam games, you know, doing all this stuff while we're on battery. I didn't even take my power adapter home. I was like, let's see what this really? laptop can do. Oh, you're living on the edge so, again. Yeah, after playing on the machine all day, I disconnect the USB power adapter and I grab the laptop and I go home, power adapter free, and I'm like, I'm going to see if I can make it all night. I was up till 10.30. I mean, I got home. I, I used that machine through dinner, through watching Deep Space Nine. Like, I did not move from that machine all night. My, you know, my situation sort of precludes me moving a lot anyway, so I sort of stay put anyways. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm sitting there working on that machine all night on battery, installing software, you know, snapping stuff up, like just going nuts and downloading games and trying them out. Ooh. And I ended the night by by just letting the machine continue to download software for another 90 minutes and I just turned the screen off and I went to bed, came back. It had, you know, dutifully gone to sleep. It had finished all the downloads. And I look at the thing still has 27% battery. And it's still telling me three and a half hours <laughs> left of, of charge. Oh, I'm excited. I know. It was really something. Like, I didn't know I could accomplish that in Linux. Like, I didn't know that was going to be possible. So that was really neat. That was a really great first impression. And the fact that the machine just was n- never a slouch. You know, just kept up with everything I was doing. I think having MVNE drives really helps with that. And then having that i7. Do you have a USB-C charger pack for it yet? Yeah, that's what it comes with. Yeah, it comes with a USB-C. Really? Yeah, it's like a 65 water. And I guess you can get up to like 100 watts or something if you get the dock. Mm. Yeah. Because they, they used to, the 470s is the one that I have. And they still came with the square. Right. 
Lenovo tip, but the CS480 nope. has USB yep. by default. All in, and that USB-C port is also a Thunderbolt 3 port as well. So. Yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's beautiful. Very excited about Once this. Once you figure out how all the cables work in that weird domain, that just the possibilities are endless. Yeah, I think fully spec they were close to $1,800, you know, but that's still significantly cheaper than a MacBook. Significantly cheaper. And for the value we're getting, I mean, well yeah. worth it. Yeah, very happy with it. So the kick in the tires, and I'm sure eventually I'll probably load some other distros on there and stuff like that, but really looking forward to just building a rock-solid mobile recording studio in a laptop. Yeah, if you guys have tips, let us know. I mean, some of you have been using Jack out there. Maybe you've got some things we really shouldn't miss when getting that set up. Or I'm a new ThinkPad user here. I mean, I've played with them before. I had a really old one back in the day, but I'm new to this. So if there's like ThinkPad things we need to do, I'd like to know. I I I would I would go as far as to conjecture, and this is this may be hopeful thinking, but you almost have to believe that Lenovo has done work to make sure this works under Linux. Because when you look at like the Ubuntu wiki and the Arch wiki. They basically say, hey, everything just works out of the box. And like when you read people's reviews for the, the current T480s, like yeah, everything just works. All the hardware just works. And then you look at the work they've done with LVFS recently. I think there's more there's going some, on. Some playing ball happening that maybe they're not so public about. Yeah, and one of the things that really drew me to the T480 is I think Alex and others had told me uh, that uh, you know there's a lot of folks at Red Hat using this particular model of ThinkPad. And I thought, okay. They know what they're doing. Yeah, they, they, they maybe they're hip to what Lenovo is <laughs> actually doing behind the scenes. You know, they could be having those business-to-business conversations, and Red Hat could say, hey, we'll buy 10,000 of those if you can make sure it does X, Y, Z okay for us. Yeah. No comment on that. Um, so, <laughs> the, uh, uh, Wes, you were saying anything specific to ThinkPads and Linux. There's a website, thinkwiki.org. Oh, um, nice. Uh, that has some interesting stuff. I dropped a link in IRC for you. Ah, we'll check Thank that you, out. I'll try to toss that in the show notes too. I, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think it was a good choice. Uh, it's not like you've said, it's not the f- most flashy laptop you could find, but I think, it, I think it's a really practical solution. And if you're on the fence out there about what machine to get, I, I really endorse this machine. I think it's, it's pretty fantastic. And it's nice to see everything just working out of the box. The one thing I'm a little worried about, I've read that Plasma users have issues with the Thunderbolt security model. You may recall we recently covered that GNOME added support for user prompting to authorize Thunderbolt devices when you plug them in. I mean, these suckers are sitting on your PCI bus. And Plasma does not yet have the facility to authorize and prompt you to authorize them. And I, I have read, have, cannot confirm yet, but I have read that if Thunderbolt security is turned on, that as a Plasma user, you have to log out and log into GNOME 3 and then authorize a device, like a dock or whatever it is, then log out of GNOME and log back into Plasma. And you have to do that every time you change a device. Oh, that sounds horrible. And so what I did is I just turned off Thunderbolt security in the BIOS, which is actually an option. I don't know what the all the ramifications of that are other than exposing my PCI bus, but... Oh, I'm I, gonna, your RAM is mine now, Chris. You better, you better watch those ports. <laughs> Who needs Heartbleed? <laughs> Wes will just plug in. Uh, so yeah, I, I made that choice for now, but I'm hoping the Plasma Project just integrates support for that security authorization. Yeah, they probably... Something we'll cover, I'm sure, right here on Linux Unplugged. Very fun, though. It's great to get new machines, especially ones that we've been kind of thinking about anyways for a while. And uh, I'll be really curious to hear your report after you get it loaded and run. I do think a nice Linux Unplugged sticker is going to look great mm, on the back. I like the way you're thinking... I like that, Wes. I like that. So if you've got any experience with machines like this or other tips like the Lenovo Wiki, let us know. LinuxUnplugged.com slash contact. You can also grab our RSS feed. That way you get every single show. It's just LinuxUnplugged.com slash RSS. And you plug that in to whatever reader or downloader you like. You got, oh, look, at it's already in the show notes. Boom. Very nice. All right. Well, go get more Wes over at TechSnap.Systems. Catch him on the recent episodes of Linux Action News as well. It's 
some great West Paint episodes well, thank recently. You, sir. Stepping up, hitting it out of the park. It's nice to have you here full time now, and I, I think it's so already excited. paying dividends. It like, sure is. Well, so go get more Wes, and uh, we'll be back next week. I I am probably still going to be for a while, at least a couple more weeks, uh, t- kind of taking it easy. Try to be here on Tuesdays for this show. Going to try to make it to, for Coder later this week, but that's probably about the most I'll be doing for the next few weeks. I'm still there, though. Still working every single day. Still checking in on stuff, making sure Wes doesn't ruin everything. I need a lot of supervision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. But in the meantime... That will bring us to the end of this week's show. I encourage you to join us. We got that open mumble room where you can comment and participate in the virtual lug. And that goes before the show and after the show. We often hang out and chat a bunch. We have a great time. It really is fun. And I I have a strong sense that an unplugged barbecue is in our future. When I've recovered, I can move around a little bit better. I think I can smell it already. Yeah. I feel like an unplugged barbecue is in our future. So stay tuned for details on that. And uh, hit me up on Telegram. Telegram or jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. Join our group and let us know your ideas for a barbecue. Join us live next week. And in the meantime, we'll see you back here next Tuesday. go oh yeah all right we got to title this thing we ran right up to the ask nor program this week so it's a big show it was a lot to cover i really you did half you did half of it twice (laughs) that's uh, people don't know but we did yeah the recording stopped and we had to redo part of the show which was never fun but we got through it we got here we are now super impressive you guys did awesome oh stop i I felt like i was listening to it for the first time (laughs) (laughs) well good good yeah you know when i saw that uh, Linus news, like I literally had to sit with it for the morning. Like it, 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 it I guess I didn't realize how much it would have impact me. Yep. It was hard. It was hard to, right? You couldn't just like chew it on it immediately. You had to let it percolate up. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of just posted the link somewhere. I would look at them later and came back to it. I was going to mention it didn't quite make it into the news, but those of you out there that are running windows and my stats show, it's a fair percentage of you. Uh, our friends over at Microsoft and Canonical have a new baby. There are now optimized Ubuntu desktop images available for Hyper-V in the Hyper-V gallery. And it's kind of legit. Uh, they've, they've integrated XRDP upstream to add support for enhanced session mode. They've improved clipboard integration. There's dynamic desktop resizing support. And there's also now support for shared folders for the hosting guest file transfer. And a much improved mouse experience. And it's easy to move between the host and the guest desktop window. Nice. I mean, if you're on professional, you might not really need VirtualBox anymore. That's what I, I mean. If you're a Windows, yeah, if you're a Windows 10 user on Pro and you've got Hyper-V, they've now got this Hyper-V gallery where you can just install 1804 optimized for Hyper-V. I, you know, I, I could try it in my new Windows partition, actually, and see how it goes. I hadn't really realized that, but I, was, I could actually try, like, Windows subsystem now and, and this. Oh, now, careful, careful, once you taste it. But that's negative in the freedom dimension. Is it? Is it? I, I have a hard time. I, and the value of this is negative. I can't really figure that out. Like, it's, Or is it like a surreptitious freedom injection into right, the proprietary right, universe? It's like a beachhead, like it's like a Trojan horse. Yeah. Of, we are the wedge. Uh, I've never installed GNU slash Linux.